The following podcast contains explicit materials. It's Monday, January 22nd, 2018. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Democrats caved. And from Ezra Levin, co-director of the anti-Trump progressive group, Indivisible. Also, the exact words, Democrats cave from Stephanie Taylor, co-founder of the Progressive Change Campaign Committee. Republicans are unlikely to give the Democrats what they wanted on DACA. No deal, plus the withering criticism. It's something of a uh, DACA blocker flame. And the Dems are no better off than when they started, are they? But are they worse off? I kind of doubt it. They weren't in a good position. They had to do something to satisfy their liberal, very pro-immigrant wing. But then the Democrats up for re-election in moderate states, the senators, I mean, trying to appeal to moderate voters who don't care that much about re-election, go all crazy cuckoo on Chuck Schumer, and that makes the difference. Well, at least during this shutdown, we got to see some sights like uh, casual Saturday and Sunday where Bob Corker sported the fleece. Some more details from a Wall Street Journal report on how poorly some of these representatives and senators dressed. Rep. Jared Polis uh, from Colorado, is once named by GQ as the worst-dressed lawmaker in Washington, shared a few of his house floor fashion tips. Quote, They often tell me I'm out of compliance by wearing sneakers, but... I found if you just wear black sneakers, they look enough like dress shoes that the parliamentarians leave you alone, said the lawmaker, flourishing a black sneaker. Who are you really getting one over on, Rep. Jared Polis? Two interesting things about the satorially disastrous Rep. Polis. One, he is gay. Two, he is the sixth richest member of Congress. Both of those things added together, you would think maybe the guy would dress with more flair. Perhaps not. I've actually uh, assessed his mode of dress. I kind of like it. Unlike Senator Lindsey Graham sporting the uh, orange Clemson hat, here's again from the journal, as Mr. Graham headed to the Senate floor, he stopped and turned around remembering, quote, oh shit, I have my hat on, end quote. Although fellow Republican Senator Tom Cotton swore, he said, oh shit, I have my house on. Which reminds me, framing the shutdown as being an act of offense taken by the president's calumny against the good people of Haiti, the entire continent of Africa, that is a principled stance. Right up until Claire McCaskill runs into your office and points to one bad poll. But we are down on the shutdown. There is a continuing resolution. And maybe we'll do it all again in a couple weeks. On the show today, I spiel about a word that's causing some problems in the Aegean Peninsula. That word is Macedonia. Who gets to say it? Well, the Greeks say, we do. We invented the language. And the Macedonians say, well, what about... And the Greeks say, no, you're not Macedonians. It's a whole thing. But first, let's talk more about the shutdown with a guy from the McClatchy newspapers, which is a great newspaper chain. They're all around America. They're in the homes, they're in the communities, they're in the farmlands. So we talked to the guy who's based in D.C. and covers the Democrats. So we just had a government shutdown ended, so it's a government restart when a shutdown takes place over the weekends. I don't know, maybe there are ripple effects that I fail to see. I think the most salient 
aspect of the shutdown was Lindsey Graham wearing uh, Clemson gear as he gave comment to reporters. Now, Alex Rorty of McClatchy covers the Democrats, so I don't know if he was in the Lindsey Graham scrum, but he is here to explain to us uh, why the Democrats did what they did with their acquiescence today in the Senate. And let me also plug a podcast that Alex is on that I listen to nearly every week. It's called Beyond the Bubble. And the McClatchy newspaper brain trust gets together to tell each other why the stuff going on in Washington will or won't resonate to the people throughout America. Hello, Alex. Thanks for joining. Hey, thanks for having me on. So I'm going to ask you a question that I think potential voters will be asking themselves, what the hell was that all about? (laughs) You know, it was this tension within the Democratic Party between its base, uh, which is really fervently behind DACA and trying to find a deal to keep the, the dreamers in the country at any cost. And what the kind of political reality for the Democratic Party in 2018, which especially in the Senate, means that you have uh, all of these Democratic senators running for re-election in red states. And in many cases, not just red states, not states that Donald Trump just won by a point or two. You're talking about the kind of states that Donald Trump won by 30 or 40 points, like West Virginia or North Dakota. And those are the senators who, despite what the polling might show that nationally that that this is a good issue for Democrats, they're they're not so sure. They're not ready to shut down the government for in the the, the parlance of of Republicans, you know, shutting it down for uh, illegal immigrants. That's the way that it gets framed in their states. And that's why they were so hesitant to engage in the shutdown to begin with. So it seems that the Democratic base, such as it is, was eager to have the fight. Democratic activists were. The Pod Save America podcast was. I think that uh, Morning Joe came around to it. Schumer was. Durbin was. I can't count too many Democrats in the House who weren't. But Joe Manchin, Clara McCaskill, Heidi Heitkamp, and Joe Donnelly weren't. Is that about right? Everyone to four? I think so. I mean, you could tack on potentially uh, someone like uh, John Tester or Sherrod Brown right. or maybe even Bob Casey, uh, who's again in a state uh, that won, uh, Donald Trump won last year, albeit by, by just a point. But look, you know, those are the people who are most concerned. But if you're Chuck Schumer, you're worried about it too, because your, your hope in 2018 against all odds, you think you could win the Senate majority. You actually think despite the map being tilted in the Republicans' favor by, by such a large degree that events have conspired, that Donald Trump is so unpopular that you actually have a hope. I mean, after all, you did just win in Alabama. But right. you're not going to be able to win a majority if Heidi Heitkamp loses her reelection or Joe Manchin loses his reelection. And all of a sudden, you know, they're just individual senators, but they start to matter an awful lot. And, and don't think that the rest of the Senate Democratic Caucus isn't cognizant of that as well. Careful to make sure that they don't put some of their colleagues in, in a tough position. You know, that if, again, if they lose, it's going to weaken every Senate Democrat's position. But what's the difference between Thursday or I guess Friday, Saturday morning when it was shut down and Monday when it was reopened? How come Chuck Schumer and those who made the decision didn't realize that the seven or so vulnerable purple or red state Democrats would be vulnerable purple or red state Democrats? How'd they come to this realization in three days? Look, I, I think that as you saw the polling came out, two things became clear. One, that generally speaking, the public was was predispositioned to blame Republicans uh, for this shutdown. And why wouldn't they? Republicans control the Senate, they control the House, and they control the, the presidency. And that was the main argument. But if you burrow down just a little bit deeper, I think there was a poll question uh, that would offer a lot of concern for Democrats. They would ask people, 
do you think that the government should be shut down uh, in order to preserve DACA, to keep dreamers in the country? And strong majorities of people said no. They don't think that the government should be shut down. So, look, I, I think the situation was even if when you start this shutdown, you think you have the upper hand, as this argument plays out, as people start paying closer and closer attention to the debate at hand, they're going to start siding with the Republicans. And I think a lot of Democrats started to feel that pressure. And I'm sure a lot of Democrats, some of the senators we just mentioned, like Heidi Heitkamp and Joe Manchin, started to feel that pressure, maybe started to feel that pressure at home, too, starting to get calls from some of their allies that this is not a winning fight. Right. Some of the states that you mentioned, I understand why DACA wouldn't be a hill to die on. But again, the question that I have is, I would think all of that would be foreseen by a smart guy like Chuck Schumer. In some ways, you could argue he just doesn't have a choice, you know, that the, the politics of the moment really at writ large but also within the Democratic Party now is you have to listen to your base. You have to be able to respond to your base. And they didn't want to show uh, that they would just punt on this, on DACA, without putting up any kind of fight. Now, look, you can question the wisdom of that and a lot of liberals are because – does a couple of days of, of government shutdown really show that you're willing to go to the mat? A lot of liberal activists would say, no, it doesn't. In fact, they are saying that. They're saying it a lot right yeah. now. It's something that I think if, if Chuck Schumer were being honest, he got pushed into this and didn't really have an exit strategy. And at that point, there's just really nothing you can do to make this better except to rip the Band-Aid off. You know, I mean, it would be worse in two weeks. What did he get or what did any of the Democrats – is their position any better than it was three days ago? It's not, it's not clear. You know, you have Senator McConnell at least saying that they can vote on DACA, that there will be a fair amendment process and, and I, Democrats will certainly say that that's what they got out of this. But in terms of things that are concrete, they, they really didn't get a whole lot. You know, look, for as, as good as things are going, generally speaking, for the Democratic Party right now, when you talk about electoral politics and all this talk of a coming blue wave, uh, this was not such a good moment. And I think that's at least certainly the early consensus. It might not matter all that much by the time November rolls around because there are going to be a million other stories between now and Election Day. But right now in the moment, it feels like Democrats picked a bad fight didn't get anything out of it and are now dealing with the consequences, not just from independent voters in North Dakota, but maybe more importantly, their own base right now who are, who are furious at the party. And what about, what about the CHIP program? Right. Well, if, if you're looking for a victory for Democrats, you know, they do get CHIP funding as part of this government plan. And that's certainly going to make it easier if, as some speculate, in a few weeks, we're back at the same place. Well, Republicans then aren't going to be able to argue that, uh, well, you're voting against chip funding, which is certainly something they said early and often during this own debate, which was a hard position for Democrats. They've been banging the drum on, on this for months. You know, so if, if you are looking for some solace, if you're a Democrat or a liberal looking for some solace out of this, well, you, you did get chip funding, which as much as we focus on the sort of political theater and, and Washington is a really big deal uh, for millions of, of children and, and their parents uh, across the country. Right. But if you want to take away that solace, you would say, congratulations, Democrats, you fought for chip funding, a program that all the Republicans say they're in favor of also. That's, that's, that's <laughs> exactly right. Where's wall funding stand? Well, <laughs> we're, we're, we're not clear if, if are we building a wall or is it just border security? Is Trump's position, uh, as his chief of staff, John Kelly, said, evolving um, or is it not, as, as the president uh, disputed in, in tweets just the next day after that interview was granted? You know, Chuck Schumer says he was willing to – he went to the White House last week and offered the wall in exchange for DACA. These are – this is his account anyway, which is a, a, 
if true, if true, is a is a fairly stunning concession for Democrats and would suggest that either DACA is just so paramount in the Democratic mind right now that nothing else matters, that you can even give the wall, or maybe th- people just don't care uh, as much, at least among liberals, they don't care as much. But this is a, a huge issue for Donald Trump. I know this has been said and written a lot since he took office, but if you're talking about signature promises during the campaign trail, I can't think of one that stood out more than the wall. His ability to get this done or not get this done, you have to think, has an effect not just on 2018, but, but his own reelection bid in 2020. Right. I would think for Democrats, that would be the number one issue, not the advisability of the wall, not even how much money it would cost. But the question, does Donald Trump get a win on a signature issue as he describes it, or does he get denied that victory? Well, you know, I just think that the pressure brought to bear with DACA and, and look, you were talking about nearly a million people's lives, right? I mean, this is an abstract. These are people who are literally showing up in Congress, who are talking with senators, who are going on TV, who are telling their stories. It's not surprising to me that this issue would supersede something like the wall. But it is very tricky politics. I I think, you know, if they could conceivably or legitimately say that, well, we we funded for increased border security, but it's not really going to be a wall. My sense is that would be enough for their base. Uh, but, you know, as with everything, I think, with negotiating the White House, the, the details and what exactly happened in the White House's own position is so murky, it's difficult to tell what's going to happen. I think that the question isn't so much, does Trump get his wall or not? It's, do the Democrats believe that he so wanted it that he would he would throw the DACA kids out who, you know, we talked about a bill of love and wanting to keep them in. I mean, I think the Republicans, there are a bunch of different Republicans and they believe different things. And I think probably Tom Cotton's really hard line on both DACA and the wall. But I think the Republicans seem to me to be pretty successful in using something as a bargaining chip, convincing the world that DACA was something that they would jettison in favor of the wall, but at the same time saying, well, we're in favor of DACA. It's odd to me that the Democrats would blink fearing that Republicans who say they're in favor of a path to legalization with DACA, you know, the majority of them do say that, that the Democrats would take that as, you know, such a uh, such a dire threat that they'd have to deal on the wall. Maybe that's what they were thinking. But, uh, you know, I got to say for the Republican Party now, it's not even the Republican Party of, of 2013, I, I don't think, you know, when there was a bipartisan comprehensive immigration reform bill uh, in the Senate. You know, this is by and large the Republican Party on immigration is the party of Steve King. It's the party of Tom Cotton. <laughs> it's the party of Donald Trump. I think what a lot of Democrats have to realize is the personal opinions of a lot of these Republican lawmakers does not necessarily matter a whole lot. What does matter is the opinions of the Republican base, which every Republican lawmaker, because they're still in office, you know this is true, is hyper attuned to what the GOP primary voter thinks. And right now, the GOP primary voter is not in favor of, of what they would consider amnesty for illegal aliens in, in any way. You know, and polls might show that, and, and polls do show that DACA is broadly popular and is popular within the Republican Party. But once the debate actually starts to happen, and once you're actually talking about what on Fox News, you know, someone like Tucker Carlson or others could just as easily say is amnesty for le- legal immigrants, it starts to change. The opinions start to change. And it's just difficult if, if you're a Democrat to think that that isn't the, the standard position in the party right now. Well, what you, Alex, what you've laid out and articulated is really interesting because 
you highlight the fact that the Republicans are very scared of getting primaried, so they're scared of the conservative base. And you've also highlighted that the animating force on the Democratic side to make the decision we saw today was Democrats in seven states that are reddish or purplish. So what's driving this conversation where 60 to 90% of Americans, depending on the poll, want the DACA kids or young adults to become legal, what's driving it is not the majority, it's not even the moderates, it's mostly a conservative leaning to quite conservative part of the electorate that's getting their say on this because of the politics of it, which not to say that politics are nefarious, but that's how the real politics have worked out, that the more conservative uh, voices in America are winning this one. Well, I, I think we've arrived at why so many liberals are upset right now. And make no mistake, they're furious. And that is just the political reality for Democrats, particularly in the Senate. You know, they have a bad hand in 2018. That, that's a great point. I un- so you would say to Democratic activists, I understand you're furious, but look at it. Because of these circumstances, because of the combination of Senate seats that are up for bid and because of how congressmen are elected and who they're scared of and how those districts are gerrymandered, we liberals, you liberals have a bad hand. You got to realize that. Right. And and that's, I think, probably the argument they're going to try to make, at least quietly. I, I don't know if you're addressing yeah. a big crowd that that's what you lead with, but quietly to a lot of <laughs> right. uh, you know progressive <laughs> leaders, that's, I'm sure, the argument that they've been making. And this is a, a really interesting moment for the left, right? Because if this were Republicans and with the Tea Party movement or with conservative primary voters, we already know the answer. It would be no, no, sorry. You know, you're, you're doing this wrong. We're going to find new leadership. We're going to vote you and people who, who support you out of office and primaries. We don't know if that's going to happen on the left. It's really one of the right. big questions of this election cycle, how much the quote unquote resistance is going to resemble the Tea Party. We haven't seen quite as much tension, I think, between the resistance and the Democratic Party. That might have changed today. Alex Rorty covers the Democrats and politics for the McClatchy newspapers. Thank you so much, Alex. Hey, thank you. And now the spiel. This, this, what you are hearing is the sound of tens, possibly 100,000 or more protesters in Greece. Protesters in Greece. So what are they protesting? Is it debt forgiveness, IMF terms, rising prices? Nope. Rally organizers claimed 400,000 turned out. Police estimated it was a crowd of 100,000 in a mass protest to demand that the country of Macedonia change its name because it's also the name of a Greek province. Let me tell you, if every Greek guy named Nick insisted they were the only Greek guys named Nick, there'd be a lot fewer Greek guys. You know what I'm saying? Greece says that Macedonia is a Greek province, not the country that Macedonia calls Macedonia, but there is a part of Greece, the northernmost province there is called Macedonia. They say, that's our name. You can't take it. You just can't go around ripping off names. 
I mean, if the Greeks let other languages just borrow their words, it would be it would be a catastrophe, an apocalypse, a cataclysm. All Greek words, by the way. And now maybe we're beginning to understand why these people have such a dire view of the situation. Greece, you understand, it's, it's a small country, a poor country, but a proud country. Greece has a population of under 11 million, a per capita income of 22,000 American. But... And this is directly to the point, Macedonia is a smaller country and a poorer country, population around 2 million, per capita income, $5,500. So when the Greeks complain that they're being bullied by European powers like Germany, made to hew to the rules set by outsiders, well, I'm sure Macedonia just turns to them and say, that's like the pot calling the Vrostiras Mavros, or... That's how they say it in Greece. In Macedonia, well, who cares? They're smaller and don't have as much money. Now, why? Maybe you're thinking, like I was thinking, why can't they go with like uh, an Inner Mongolia, Outer Mongolia solution? You know, China, province, Inner Mongolia, and then Mongolia is Mongolia. Maybe the Chinese internally call it Outer Mongolia. We all get along. I'm an American. I live in New York. I've been to New London. No problem. I see no harm in these loner names. The Greeks do not see it like this. There's one protester who was quoted by the AFP. He was speaking in English. Macedonia is the only place that unites the Greeks for millennia. And we will never accept another country next to Greece to be called Macedonia. Okay. I think there's a solution right there. That's an avenue for compromise. If it's not next to Greece... Maybe you could call it Macedonia. So Canada or Uzbekistan can be rebranded Macedonia. Well, those, those are two great country names. So is New Zealand. But what about Chad? Maybe Chad's looking for a new name. It's not a great name for a country. Or, you ready? Laos. Laos. You know, maybe if any Laotian gets a notion to name themselves for a country across the ocean, they go with Macedonia. And just to give you some idea of how important an issue this is to the Greeks, Wikipedia, their coverage of the Macedonia name dispute runs to 20,000 words, and the article has 249 footnotes. By comparison, a Wikipedia article on the Peloponnesian War is 5,500 words with 22 footnotes. The Peloponnesian War reshaped the world. It switched Athens for Sparta as the great power. It changed everything in Western civilization, whereas the Macedonia naming controversy is like when Anderson, Buford, Wakeman, and Howe couldn't call themselves yes, but on an international scale. There is a new leader of the Macedonian people, possibly a new dawn, a new day in Macedonia. His name is Zoran Zeev. He seems more internationally oriented than the last leader. Maybe he'll deal I got to say, though, the last guy, Nikola Gruevsky, he was said to be a nationalist, but he seemed pretty reasonable when asked by CNN about the name dispute that is literally keeping Macedonia out of the EU. The big challenge for your EU membership is a very simple thing. It's just the name of your country. But you see it as your identity. But Greece will never approve of your membership, will it, if you keep the name? In the last years, we tried to find some compromises for this issue with Greece. I tried personally to call uh, the Prime Minister of Greece to have direct uh, talks about this issue and to try on a faster way to solve this issue, but he rejected uh, several times the, the meetings. Now think about this. How do you get the Greeks to take your call if you can't even properly announce yourself? 
Hi, it's Nicola from uh, around the way. Local Balkan, Nicola. Okay, it's Nicola the Macedonian. You insufferable pricks. Right now, Macedonia, sorry, West Albania, is not being allowed into the EU, as I said, because of the name, and I see only one way out. See, what you do is you get America involved. We're, we're peace-loving, solutions-oriented people. I think uh, Kushner, he has, you know, some room in his portfolio for this one. And what he does is he organizes a delegation. You get Rizzo, you get Kanicki, you get Danny Zuko, and they all go to Greece. And they say, hey, listen, there's only one Greece in the world, and Greece is the word. We're going to race you for the name Greece. We're racing for pinks, punk. And if Greece, the Broadway cast, wins, they take the name Greece and then they trade it back to Greece for the name Macedonia. And if they lose, well, then maybe Macedonia will just have to console themselves with the less successful but still on brand name Greece, too. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Pierre Bienname lived through this government shutdown, and all he got was this lousy six years of chip funding, which is not that bad. Mary Wilson, just senior producer, held fast on her anti-spelunking stance, but eventually she caved. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, isn't saying the Dems caved, but they couldn't find their caucus in the dark without the help of echolocation. The Gist. Join me and co-host Deion Sanders every week as we discuss government nonfeasance and man-to-man coverage techniques in the Tampa 2 defense. It's Shutdown Corner, coming to a very confused podcast feed near you. Oomperu de Peru du Peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>